I get the session where you just carbo-blasted yourselves, and uh, so I, I will not look unfavorably on sleepy eyes. I understand that. Especially, and I, I regret this now because of its being after lunch, uh, my message title is A Mouthful. <laughs> it is Christian Nationalism, Premillennialism, and the Gospel. And to help us understand that, turn with me to Psalm 89. Psalm 89 will be our initial jumping off point. Later on will be in Acts 21. And while you're finding that text, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we come to you now. Oh, so very thankful that as we have done last night and this morning, and we'll do this afternoon, we have no need to guess We have no need to wonder what your mind is. We simply open our Bibles and we find truth that is understandable, that is relatable, that commands our hearts and directs our actions. And so I pray during this time, it's a little bit of a technical topic, but I pray, Lord, that it's beneficial to us to see our place in this world and what you would have us to do to show our allegiance and our love to our Savior, our King, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. So we'll start in Psalm 89 here in a moment, just for a moment. And just to put anyone's mind at ease, my basic argument today is going to be that Christian nationalism, the attempt to Christianize a nation officially at the governing level, is incompatible with premillennialism. My goal is not to convince you of premillennialism. I'm not trying to convince you of that. I simply want to demonstrate that premillennialism, which is the theological position of this church and of both of our speakers today, that premillennialism and Christian nationalism cannot coexist. They're at odds with one another. You, you can be one or the other. You can't be both with integrity. Now, I'm fully aware that here at Grace We're taking an extensive deep dive into this whole issue um, in our Millennium Series on Sunday evenings. I'm 20% of the way through a multi-year trek that we're doing into the Millennium. But this conference, I don't know if it's just because it was a good idea or I couldn't help myself, but it, it gave a very unique opportunity to demonstrate that eschatology is not just a scholarly or dusty theological argument you have over coffee it actually impacts how you think about the world and it impacts how you act in the world and so here's my basic argument it's going to be somewhat like a pyramid a lot at the bottom a little bit more and then kind of a a one little top my basic argument is around three words and if you want to start headings and i don't have any powerpoints sorry i i didn't do that this time three words if then Therefore, that's how we're going to start. If, then, and therefore. Now, let me fill those in. I'm going to give you my whole argument up front. If the kingdom of Christ is not by natural means. If the kingdom of Christ is not by natural means. And I'll repeat these as we go. Then the kingdom of Christ must come by supernatural means then the kingdom of Christ must come by supernatural means. Therefore, the church is to seek kingdom citizens by supernatural means. Therefore, the church is to seek kingdom citizens by supernatural means, and that is the gospel. So I'll repeat that, and then we'll, we'll do it again as we go. If the kingdom of Christ is not by natural means, then the kingdom of Christ must come by supernatural means, Therefore, the church is to seek kingdom citizens by supernatural means. So we're going to spend a a good chunk of our time on the bottom part of this pyramid, the first part of the argument, if the kingdom of Christ is not by natural means. And to dive in a bit into what this means, we have to lay a, I guess I would call a very rudimentary and plain foundation of premillennialism. And so to do that, I'm going to explain the, the basics I'm going to explain the myths and I'm going to explain the features of premillennialism for just a short time. First of all, the basics of premillennialism. 
We start with a bird's eye view from Psalm 89. Psalm 89, verse 1. I will sing of the loving kindnesses of Yahweh forever. From generation to generation, I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. I have cut a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne from generation to generation. What are some of the features of those verses? First of all, you have a forever covenant with David to establish his offspring forever on a throne. What nation is at the center of that throne? Verse 18. For our shield belongs to Yahweh and our king to the Holy One of Israel. That throne belongs to Israel. And where is this throne? Where is the throne of Israel? Verse 27. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. The throne is on the earth. Now, just a a little contrast here. I won't spend much time on this at all. Post-millennialism, and there's lots of variations to this, but post-millennialism basically says that the church will bring about the full reformation of the world until Christ will come and reign spiritually, or he'll reign spiritually through the church, For the thousand years, other views say that that the thousand years begin when Christ comes, but we will have already established the kingdom. There's numbers of variations. Daniel Whidbey in the late 1600s, rather, he's the one who really pushed this uh, at a level that gained a lot of prominence. And I I would say that post-millennialism is very compatible with Christian nationalism. In fact, I would say the two go hand in hand and almost define one another in many ways. Amillennialism says that the next event to happen concerning the end times is the return of Christ, followed immediately by all the judgments, resurrections, final state, everything. Some variations would say we're in the millennium now, the reign of Christ with a thousand years of Revelation 20 either being symbolic for a long time or a literal thousand years, but we're in it now. I'm not going to provide a critique of all those. That's not my purpose today. I've done that extensively in our Sunday night preaching series on the millennium. And then premillennialism, this is based on an interpretation of Scripture that the unconditional promises made to Abraham and to David will have an ultimate literal fulfillment in time and space, that they're not spiritualized, they are actual. That at the close of this age, Christ will return to earth to establish Messiah's kingdom for a thousand years. And during this time, all of God's promises to Israel will find their ultimate fulfillment I'm going to leave rapture discussions out of our time today. I said we would do that today, but I think I'll leave that out for today. It doesn't help us that much right now. The premillennial view is the only view that doesn't involve making literal things symbolic. It's the only view that's consistent with what's called a prima facie or a, or a first impression reading of the book of Revelation. And it's the only view that doesn't involve reinterpreting Old Testament passages. And that's that's not my opinion. Even amillennial theologians will say this as well. The premillennial view places Christ bodily and physically on the earth, reigning in full visibility to the world in an intermediate age. And I'll talk about that more in a second. So those are the basics. That's basically what premillennialism is. I want to spend a little time on the myths of premillennialism. I do this for the sake of precision. And also, I have one point to make here at the end of this part. And if you've been here on Sunday nights, you've heard this. I'm giving you the very short version. Two myths about premillennialism. The first myth is that premillennialism is based solely on Revelation 20. That premillennialism is based solely on Revelation 20. Now, certainly Revelation 20 is the only text in the Bible that specifies the intermediate kingdom's duration of a thousand years. And it says it six times just to make sure we get it. But it is inaccurate to say that premillennial theology is based solely on Revelation 20. Just as a couple of examples, in my first message alone a few months ago on this the series we're doing, we considered over 50 different passages just to introduce the introduction to the topic. Right now I'm in the middle of a, a section in our series where we're looking at major Old Testament passages. It'll take 19 weeks to get through major Old Testament passages. It'll take another 15 weeks to get through the premier New Testament passages concerning the millennium. And that doesn't count 
the topic of Israel's future restoration, that's going to take several dozen messages to go through, starting in Genesis all the way through Revelation, hundreds of passages that we'll consider. So those who say premillennialism is just based on Revelation 20, I would say that's a straw man argument. It's not true, and, and nobody who's premillennial says that. There's a second myth, and I'm going to spend a little more time on this, and that is that premillennialism is a relatively new doctrine. It's a relatively new doctrine because of its association with dispensationalism. I know we're throwing out a lot of isms right now. Dispensationalism, to, to boil it down, is a belief in a literal restoration of the nation of Israel in the future by taking the promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David as fulfilled literally in time and space. Now, I, for this particular point, I have a purpose that's directly related to our topic this weekend, and I'll, I'll tell you what that is in a moment. But I, I just want to disprove this myth that premillennialism is relatively new because it's associated with dispensationalism. A few months ago, I took two full hours to share this with you, and so I'm going to try to do this in about five or ten minutes but I don't want anyone writing off premillennialism because they believe the tired old line that premillennialism is relatively new in the history of theology. It's not. And I say this and I'm passionate about it because in today's theological landscape, dispensational premillennialism is generally seen as the ugly cousin that nobody really wants at the family reunion. It's seen as weird, unpopular, we're the weird part of the family that most people seem to wish would just go away. When you see the family photo of all the Christians, uh, the dispensationalists, we're, we're the ones going, you know, in front of the camera. And we're, we're the odd ducks. But it is reasonable to ask, who else has believed that Christ is coming to physically reign over a literal kingdom on earth featuring a restored Israel? Man, I respect tremendously. He's a godly man, has a pastoral heart. Cornelius Venema. He's an amillennial theologian and author. And he wrote what I think should be considered the premier systematic theology on amillennial, uh, amillennial uh, uh, eschatology called The Promise of the Future. And he wrote this concerning the history of dispensationalism, which is highly connected to premillennialism. This is what he wrote. Quote, The story of modern dispensationalism begins around 1825 and is associated with an Irishman by the name of John Nelson Darby. He was a clergyman in the Church of England. Darby was the, the eventual founder of the Plymouth Brethren. Uh, Venema then cites Cyrus Schofield, C.I. Schofield, and the Schofield Reference Bible as a major factor in spreading a belief in dispensationalism. Venema is correct on his history about Schofield in particular, but I point this out because this is a pattern I've read many amillennial explanations of premillennialism and it always goes back to 1825. A whole bunch of people quoting each other doesn't make them all right. You can't separate dispensationalism from premillennialism. And now those labels haven't existed that long, but the, the beliefs behind them have. And so let, let me just hit this really fast and work our way backwards. Premillennialism we know this already, has existed in the 19th to the 21st centuries, the 1800s to the 2000s. Nobody disputes that. Let me just hit a couple of highlights, though. Right now, in the 21st century, there are numbers of wonderful Jewish Christian ministries, such as Jews for Jesus, Chosen People Ministries, Light of Messiah Ministries, Messianic Jewish Alliance of America, Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations, One for Israel, and Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. They're all premillennial. All of them. And it's not just because they're Jewish. Some of them have extensive doctrinal statements backing their belief with some hefty good work. But if we go back to the 19th and early 20th centuries, just touching maybe on one important premillennialist, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, in the mid-1800s, he was a Calvinist pastor and theologian, and he taught a definite restoration of Israel. He said, quote, It is also certain that the Jews as a people will yet own Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David, as their king, and they will return to their own land. Between 1800 and 1875, a total of about 2,000 authors wrote about Israel at any theological level whatsoever. 
But the 20th century, that number exploded. It, it went through the roof. The explosion of interest in Israel by Christians was spurred on by two major events. The first one was the Holocaust. It forced Christians to re-examine their doctrinal beliefs about the Jews. The second one was the reestablishment of Israel as a sovereign nation. This was eye-opening because it showed that this is at least possible. Now, our view here is that, that the nation of Israel as it is today is not the eschatological in times Israel, that they are still, in fact, a nation that has, has rejected Christ as Messiah. But it did say, okay, when in history has a nation that hasn't been a nation for 20 centuries ever reconstituted itself? That's never happened. So at least made authors begin to examine that. But no one debates the recent history of premillennialism. What about before 1825? How about premillennialism in England in the 1600s and 1700s? Just in the last couple of years, Dr. William Watson, he's a professor of English history, he wrote a massive volume citing over 400 sources, and it's called Dispensationalism Before Darby. And in 350 pages or so, he demolishes the myth that premillennial theology basically started with Darby in 1825. Now, I'll just give you a few examples of theologians who were premillennial in this era. John Bershensha, in 1660, he wrote the history of Scripture, and he divided history into various biblical ages, and he called them, guess what, dispensations. He urged his readers against the error of applying prophecies meant for Israel to their own nation. William Allen, or Elaine, depending on how you pronounce it, wrote the state of the church in future ages in the 1670s. He taught that the first age of the Jews ended at the death of Christ. The age of the Gentiles began, but the second age of the Jews will begin again when God gathers them from the earth at the same time Antichrist is defeated. Richard Hayter, H-A-Y-T-E-R, in 1675, he wrote The Meaning of Revelation. His goal was to support a literal interpretation of Revelation rather than what he called the mystical interpretations. He took Revelation as centering on Jerusalem rather than England or Europe, as many theologians wanted to do. But we're in America, so let's cross the Atlantic and come to the time of the American colonies and specifically some of the American Puritans. What about premillennialism during the time of the colonies? Now, generally speaking, when you talk about American Puritanism, it's assumed that the overwhelming ideal was that the Americas, this was going to be the place where all Christian millennial hopes could be realized, that God's redemptive plan for the world would be American rather than in Israel. And there is some evidence that American pastors around the time of the revolution, they were interpreting events as a millennial event happening in America. And that's not completely without rationale, as Jesse pointed out earlier. Our nation is really unique in all of history in the, way, in the freedoms that we have been provided and, and the, the way we function. But what about before the American Revolution? John Cotton Late 1500s, early 1600s, one of the earliest pastors in New England. He was part of the purge that we heard about earlier, beginning in England when the Archbishop of Canterbury was getting rid of Calvinist pastors. So Cotton came to the Massachusetts Bay Colony, began preaching a future kingdom of Christ on earth. John Davenport, same time period, a prominent London pastor, he came to New England under the same persecution. He was a premillennialist who told his congregation that Christ would come with the armies of heaven to judge the world and set up a kingdom. William Hook, 1600 to 1677, he was a pastor in Connecticut. He wrote that the prophecies of the Old Testament concern Israel and the coming salvation of a nation as a whole. And he wrote, quote, the great and settled glory of the church on earth will not be before the coming of Christ to judgment. The Puritan pastor Increase Mather, he gave a scathing, long rebuttal to ancient accusations that a belief in a literal kingdom Christ on earth was somehow novel and new. He wrote in a later work in 1709 called A Dissertation Concerning the Future Conversion of the Jewish Nation. And he wrote this, Some say it's novelty and thereupon dislike it, but it is more ancient than Justin Martyr, and he called it an apostolic truth. 
William Torrey, pastor in Massachusetts for most of the late 1600s, he wrote in 1867 a brief discourse concerning futurities or things to come. He put together a biblical timeline of events that could be in a premillennial textbook today. He used Jeremiah and Ezekiel to teach on the restoration of Israel that there will be, as he put it, a time when God would gather them, that as the Jews, that is the Jews, out of all the countries and bring them to their land, which is yet future. Cotton Mather, the son of Increase Mather, he taught a glorious future for Israel. He gave tremendous evidence that premillennialism goes back to the first generation of the church. Well, let's cross the Atlantic back into the same time period the second and third generation or so after the Reformation in Europe. The Geneva Bible, first published in 1560, in its 1581 edition, made some changes, including much more positive views of a future for Israel. For example, commenting on Romans 11.26, the editors affirmed that Israel is, will be a literal nation with a literal land that is theirs. The 17th century in Europe saw a huge resurgence in interest in the study of the future of Israel. And there's a very simple reason. By the 17th century now, more people than ever before had a Bible in their own language, and they began to read. And they weren't just hearing what they had heard their whole lives, that the church is Israel. They were now reading the Old Testament and making their own judgments. For English Puritans, eventually, as church historian Ian Murray writes, He said, quote, belief in a future conversion of Israel became commonplace. Thomas Brightman, late 1500s, early 1600s, he was an English pastor, wrote his own commentary on Revelation, and he wrote of Israel, shall they return to Jerusalem again? There is nothing more certain. The prophets do everywhere beat upon it. William Perkins, one of my favorite Puritan pastors in the late 1500s, early 1600s. He predicted a future for Israel in his sermons on the end times. Many Puritans followed in the steps of the Reformers, but many did not. They didn't. Those Puritans who held to the restoration of Israel saw the national conversion of Israel to Christ as the prerequisite for the second coming. That had to happen. In Holland, the Dutch Reformed Church had a representative of of premillennial ministers. They had William Abrackle. They had Petrus Serarius, Dutch Reformed ministers who taught the future conversion of Israel, a separate church age that's different and distinct. So if we were looking for a stopping point, a point of origin of premillennialism, we haven't found it yet. From today back to the 1500s, premillennialism has existed and often thrived. But there is a massive pause in premillennialism, and it coincides with the Middle Ages, with the, at the height of the control of the powerful Roman Catholic Church. But then we go back earlier, as the early church had progressed, we get to the time of Augustine, around the 4th century or so, other views of the millennium began creeping in, and we're going backwards in time here, and primarily because of the influence of Augustine. And this is agreed upon by, by theologians of every ilk, Primarily because of the influence of Augustine, the church fully advocated amillennial theology, which now made the kingdom of Christ a spiritual kingdom happening now through the church. And in that era, almost no theologian held a positive view of the Jews or of Israel. That is extremely well documented by multiple sources. And so tragically, in coinciding with the rise of the Roman Catholic Church, premillennialism almost ceased to exist for quite a number of centuries. But if we go back before that time, what about the the time from the death of the apostles all the way to AD 325, the Council of Nicaea? This is sometimes called the Anti-Nicene Age, anti-A-N-T-E, not anti-Nicene, just meaning before that first council. From about AD 100 to 325, this was a time where the church was now strengthening their grasp on key theological concepts. And during the Antonicene period, the most common belief concerning the end times, concerning God's plan for Israel and for the nations, was premillennialism. It wasn't known by that name yet, but that was the belief system. And during that time, there is not, listen carefully, 
There is not a single known writing from an Orthodox Christian leader espousing any other view of the millennium. I'll just give you a list. Barnabas, author of the Epistle of Barnabas. Polycarp, student of the Apostle John himself. Papias, also a student of the Apostle John. Now, Papias is huge. He's important. Papias was quoted extensively by other church leaders because he was friends with several who had interacted with Jesus and interacted with the apostles. Papias made note of his interactions with the apostles. He lists from first-hand knowledge the apostles Andrew, Peter, Philip, Thomas, James, John, and Matthew as all being premillennial. Justin Martyr, the most overtly Antonicene premillennial church father. Irenaeus, Tertullian, Methodius, Lactantius, who takes us right up to the to the time of, uh, of the uh, Nicene Creed and so forth. They're all premillennial. That's just a sample. That's just a sample. We, we could make a longer list. Hippolytus, Cyprian, Nepos, Victorinus, Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Hermas, Aristio, John the Presbyter, Pathinius, Melito, Hegesippus, Tatian, Apollinaris, Commodian. Listen, that's a who's who of Bible teachers for 225 years. And they're all premillennial. If I had time, we would go into the premillennialism of Mary, the mother of Jesus, of Christ himself, of the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John. I've done so in other messages. So the myth of premillennial theology being relatively new is simply not the case. It's simply not the case. And just because one person quoting 10 other people who all believe a myth doesn't make it right. We just have to look at actual facts. Now, here's my point. Why, why go through this? And I know I use the H word, history lesson. Keep in mind that all of these premillennial pastors and theologians that I just highlighted, many of them, if not most of them, lived through much more and much farther oppressive governments than we do. And generally speaking, they never prioritized making governmental changes. They prioritized the gospel. They prioritized serving Christ while awaiting his return. That's the basics in the myths. Just briefly, the coming millennial kingdom, I boil it down to six things to look forward to. And this is just getting us going here. First of all, it's an earthly kingdom. The kingdom is earthly. Zechariah 14.9, Yahweh will be king over all the earth. In that day, Yahweh will be the only one, his name one. Second major element, the glorious restoration of Israel. The glorious restoration of Israel. This is based on God being faithful to his covenants to Abraham and David in the same way he promised them, no reinterpretation necessary. This is one of the chief reasons for the millennium in the first place. When the covenant-keeping God that we love fulfills all of His promises to His chosen nation. And that nation is going to function as they were originally designed for. What was the design of the nation of Israel from Exodus 19? It was to be a kingdom of what? Priests. To be the the witness to to a world all around them of a holy God. And that purpose is going to be reinstated only perfectly. Zechariah 8.23 says, Thus says the Yahweh of hosts, In those days, ten men from every tongue of the nations will take hold of the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Earthly kingdom, glorious restoration of Israel, the visible reign of Christ. The visible reign of Christ, the return of Christ, will see Him fulfilling the covenants In Romans 11, Paul cites Isaiah 59 to show that the return of Christ is what brings about the restoration of Israel, the fulfillment of all of God's covenants with Israel. Paul says, and so all Israel will be saved just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. And what's his reason? Verse 29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Jeremiah 23 gives what I think is the most direct assertion of the coming reign of Christ on earth in the Old Testament, except maybe Zechariah 14. But Jeremiah 23, 5 through 8 says that the reign of Christ happens in Israel, in the land. And you have to really work hard to spiritualize that. It's very, very geographic. 
A fourth feature, a righteous government. A righteous government. The supreme governing authority in the millennium is a divine monarchy. Jesus Christ the King. What will his government be like? And I'm just going to zip through this just to show you that, that this is all over the Old Testament. Isaiah 11, perfect wisdom. Jeremiah 23, equity and justice. Psalm 2, Psalm 72, Isaiah 65, Zechariah 14, sin will be punished perfectly. Isaiah 24, the reign of Messiah will be glorious. Isaiah 2, Christ will reign from Jerusalem. Psalm 72, Daniel 7, Micah 4, Zechariah 8, the nations will be subject to the king and all of them will bow down to him in submission. Isaiah 2, Weapons no longer necessary. Nations not going to war against each other. Why? Because in the millennial kingdom, Satan is bound and Christ is in total control. 2 Timothy 2, Revelation 5, Revelation 20, all state that the church age saints, that's us, will reign with Christ, rightfully sharing the derived authority given to us by Christ. There's another quality, a feature, a worship-centered kingdom. A worship-centered kingdom There will be unbelievers in the millennium. Descendants of the survivors of the great tribulation. Isaiah 65, 20 says, No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fulfill his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100 and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. Traditional amillennial theology says, well, that's just a metaphor for the fact that no one will die. No, it says the youth will die. You can't say that something that's happening is a metaphor for something that's not happening or the other way around. It indicates, yes, infant mortality is gone. Those who get saved live very long lives. The unsaved ones are seen to be cursed by God because they died at a hundred but the gospel continues to be proclaimed. Many will be saved. Listen, Zechariah 13.1 says, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and impurity. Meaning the gospel is just going everywhere. Zechariah 14 indicates the reinstitution of certain feasts and festivals. The feast of booths will be required for all nations, and those who do not participate are punished. And of course, the glorified and resurrected saints of the church age and the resurrected saints of the Old Testament time will be worshiping perfectly as we reign alongside the king. And one more feature, a dramatic ending. A dramatic ending at the end of the millennium. Satan will be released briefly and he'll incite a revolt by unsaved, unglorified people. Revelation 20 explains this. This will prove, by the way, that even the incredible environment of a world ruled by Christ and his glorified saints won't change the inner depravity of the unsaved. That salvation must be from the inside out. It cannot go from the outside in. Satan and his forces will be defeated in one glorious battle and sent to the lake of fire. The Son of God will have successfully, spiritually purified the world once and for all. And gloriously, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 says, Then comes the end, when He hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and power. That Christ will have fulfilled every promise to Abraham, every promise to Isaac, every promise to Jacob, every promise to David during this time. The kingdom of Christ cannot come by natural means, certainly not by a Christianized government or placing ultimate hope in laws made by sinful, arrogant, corrupt men. So this is the big bottom of the pyramid here. If the kingdom of Christ is not by natural means, then the kingdom of Christ must come by supernatural means. The kingdom of Christ is supernatural. It's visible But it's supernatural. The coming of Christ is a supernatural event. The the repentance of national Israel is a supernatural event. The judgment of the living, the establishment, the resurrected saints as co-rulers on the earth with Christ, that's a supernatural event. A righteous government can only be righteous when there's a, a perfect king ruling. The withholding of rain from disobedient nations as outlined in Zechariah 14, that's a supernatural event. 
any other means to try to create a spiritual utopia on earth is bound to fail, and historically, they have always failed. Every attempt to create a completely Christianized society has failed. Why? Because it it turns legalistic by attempting to, to force people to live the Christian faith when they're unregenerate. And as Jesse wisely pointed out last night, our faith is a narrow road. You can't force all of humanity onto the narrow road with policy or with politicians. I think premillennialists sometimes are accused of giving up on society. Does that mean that we just give up, that we give up on trying to make this a better world in the here and now? Uh, to be honest with you, I think that's a straw man argument. I don't think anybody actually believes that. We're commanded in 1 Timothy 2 to pray for our leaders. We're commanded in Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, to obey our leaders to the degree that we're able to under God's law, as Jesse explained so well. We're commanded right before this in 1 Peter 2 to live holy lives among the lost so that we might be a witness of a changed life to them. But we're also commanded, put your thinking caps on here, We're also commanded by Jesus in Matthew's gospel to pray, your kingdom come, future. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. I don't have time for an extensive study on the kingdom of God in the gospel of Matthew, but if we had time, it would reveal that when Matthew's gospel speaks of the kingdom, it is always the physical king on the earth kingdom expected by the Jews. In other words, the prayer, your kingdom come, is the same prayer as John's closing prayer in Revelation 22, come Lord Jesus. It's the same prayer. So if the kingdom of Christ is not by natural means, then the kingdom of Christ must come by supernatural means. Now we get to the therefore. Therefore the church is to seek kingdom citizens by supernatural means. And what is that? That's when the gospel comes in. That's our purpose is the gospel. In fact, I want to have us turn to Acts 21. I've really just been aiming for this. I want to use the example of Rome. Rome was the quintessential New Testament example of a government, certainly not founded in any sort of Christian principle, not friendly to the faith. At the time of the New Testament, Rome was the dominant empire of the world of the Bible, the Near East, Asia Minor, North Africa, much of Europe. And the most brilliant mind in the Christian church at the time was the Apostle Paul, sharp in his theology, quick in his logic. I'd like to trace his interactions with Rome and with the Roman government. Acts 21, verse 30, kind of far into the chapter there. Paul is in Jerusalem, and Paul was, he's just minding his own business. He's in the temple, fulfilling a vow he'd made, and a crowd gets stirred up. Acts 21, verse 30. Then all the city was stirred, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut while they were seeking to kill him. A report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took along soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So the Roman soldiers actually saved his life. Good news! Then they arrested him. Bad news! Verse 33... Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains and they began asking who he was and what he had done. Well, the crowd continued rioting, so Paul was physically carried by the soldiers to get away from the crowd to the barracks of the soldiers. But Paul asked the commander for permission to address the crowd of Jews. And so he does so in chapter 22, verse 1. Men, brothers, and fathers, hear my defense which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even quieter. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but having been brought up in this city, having been instructed at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strictness of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering both men and women into prisons. And Paul proceeded to tell him his gospel testimony, his salvation testimony, how he was confronted by the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And he was commissioned to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And when he said that, the crowd hated him all the more. 
So the commander brought them indoors to carry out what they called examination by flogging. That by torturing Paul, they might find out the truth. Big mistake for the commander. Chapter 22, verse 24. The commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by flogging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. But when they stretched him out with leather straps, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman and and uncondemned? Uh Uh-oh. And when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported to them, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. And the commander came to him and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. Now the commander was astonished at this, because citizenship brought with it many privileges, privileges he had paid for. Verse 28, And the commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, kind of with a, I was born a citizen. In other words, I'm top notch, legally. Verse 29, therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately withdrew from him. And the commander also was afraid when he learned that he was a Roman because he had bound him. The commander had broken the law. And now begins a series of delays and trials and presentations. First, Paul appeared before the Jerusalem council, the Sanhedrin, He struck on the mouth at the command of the high priest and and Paul caused dissension even between the council members. Chapter 23, verse 6. Jesse said earlier that he hopes there's some replays of things in heaven. I hope this is one that gets replayed. Knowing that one group were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the Sanhedrin, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. As he said this, there was dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided, for the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And now a huge uproar is developing, and Paul again has to be removed by the Roman soldiers for his own safety. Then there's a conspiracy to kill Paul. But in God's providence, a messenger made it to the commander. The commander took great pains. He took 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, almost 500 men to to accompany Paul safely to the city of Caesarea. I'm handing this off to Governor Felix. In chapter 24, he has a trial before Felix. Uh, Felix was intrigued by Paul's message and his teaching, and he was hoping for a bribe. And so Felix kept him for two years. Well, Felix is replaced, and he leaves Paul in prison. Festus replaces him. Acts 25, Festus held a trial. Paul enacted his right as a Roman citizen. He said, I appeal to Caesar. Festus answered properly, to Caesar you shall go. And so Festus was then visited by the Roman-appointed king of the whole region, King Agrippa. Paul made his case to King Agrippa. Once again, telling the testimony of his salvation, how Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And in fact, Agrippa was disturbed by this. He was bothered by it. And he even said, in such a short time, you were persuading me to become a Christian? And Paul said, I hope so. And he said, I hope everybody who's hearing this becomes a Christian. And then Paul began his long, arduous journey to Rome, sailing for Italy with other prisoners under the guard of a centurion named Julius, a storm at sea, shipwreck, making it to the island of Malta, getting bitten by a snake, miraculously suffering no harm, waiting for three months before the weather would allow sailing, finally landing in Italy, walking to Rome, being put under house arrest. Why do we walk through all of this? Let me give you two reasons. First of all, Paul did not concern himself with anything like addressing the shameful fashion that he was treated by the Sanhedrin being struck or the fact that he was imprisoned for years by the Roman government for charges related to religious actions. Yes, when he was able, he pointed out his Roman citizenship. It enabled him to avoid one flogging. It gave him the right to appeal to Caesar But in all of his preaching, in all of his trials, all of his appeals, all of his interactions with so many, by the time we get to the end of the book of Acts, at least minimum four years or more in this ordeal I just described. In all of this time, he never once complained about the problems of the government. 
He never once said we should overthrow that wicked Jewish council in Jerusalem or the Roman governor or King Agrippa or the emperor. He never once said, you know, we should try to introduce some new laws that are more favorable to Christians. It wouldn't have been wrong. He just didn't do that in all of that time. And the second reason I wanted to share that story with you, the text reveals the gospel purpose behind this ordeal. Look at chapter 23, verse 11. Chapter 23, verse 11, after being humiliated and struck by the Jerusalem council. Chapter 23, verse 11, on that very night, the Lord stood at his side and said, take courage, for as you have solemnly borne witness to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must bear witness at Rome also. Turn to Acts 27. Acts 27, 21. When Paul is on the sinking ship, he encouraged the crew. And boy, if you're a crew on a sinking ship and there's one guy who's calm, that's the guy you're listening to. Acts 27, 21. And when they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice to not set sail from Crete to avoid this damage and loss. And now I advise you to be cheerful. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Whew, the unbelievers get to go along for the ride and be saved as well. But I think the most telling is right at the end of Acts when Paul was under house arrest in Rome. Turn to Acts 28. When he's under house arrest, what's actually happening here? Acts 28, verse 23. And when they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly bearing witness about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Verse 24, and some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others were not believing. And in the very end, verse 30, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, unhindered. From his imprisonment, Paul wrote several letters, one to the church in Philippi. And interestingly, he gave greetings to the church from the saints of Caesar's household, the guards, the servants, those who had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, listen, Paul was in a dream gospel situation. Here he is, chained up in a house, and he has crowd after crowd after crowd of unbelievers coming in, sitting down, hearing the gospel, half of them leaving saved. Next, please. And he was like a traveling evangelist where the crowds came to him. Right under the nose of the emperor himself, Paul was teaching, last word in the book of Acts, unhindered. Now, what do you think was the priority of Jesus Christ? Was it to make some declarations about how unjust the Roman government is or how horrible the Sanhedrin was? Those things are true. But the priority of Jesus Christ was not to overthrow Rome the priority of Jesus Christ was to fill the roll call of heaven with new citizens. Don't worry about overthrowing Rome. Jesus is going to do that when he returns anyway. That's the easy part. We don't need to worry about that. Wherever you've been placed, you are placed for the gospel. And you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you trust the Lord. You say, give us this day our daily bread. Paul himself told us where the real battle is. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against these spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day 
And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, having taken up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Also receive the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times with all prayer and petition in the Spirit. And to this end, being on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, as well as on my behalf, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of what? The gospel. That's the battle. That's the battle. Oh, I loved what Jesse said earlier. That all authority is from God, therefore all authority will be accountable to God. I've asked the Lord for 50-yard line seats to the great white throne judgment. I don't know if he's going to answer that prayer or not. Every wicked leader will be called to account. And the shouts of delight by the godly when God's retribution comes will be deafening. If the kingdom of Christ is not by natural means, then the kingdom of Christ must come by supernatural means. And therefore, the church is to seek kingdom citizens by supernatural means. What is that? That is the gospel. And that's why you're here. That's why you're here. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, you have left us here in a wicked world to be the only light. The only light in darkness. May our light shine brightly and may we have some small part in bringing many into the roll call of heaven that we may rejoice with singing and shouts of joy as those who formerly worshipped themselves and the gods of this world now worship the true and living God through Christ. May the glory of your gospel, the power of your gospel pervade our culture in a way that no law, no politician, no election could possibly hope to accomplish. All that our coming King might be glorified. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.